nothing more valuable than having conviction. If you do not have conviction, crypto is so volatile. It's so insane. There's so much noise. There's so many different people trying to push you in different directions that you will just be a leaf blowing around in the wind and you know eventually you're, you're just going to get blown out in space. Days ago, somebody relatively prominent said uh, Bitcoin is bigger than the internet, bigger than the industrial revolution. Was that Tim Draper? And it's exactly what's happening with Bitcoin. Bitcoin. I, don't know why I, I don't know why I said anything about it. Bitcoin possesses all the attributes, not only of good money, but of supremely good money. But of course, it's not financial advice. Hello, guys. Welcome to Non-Financial Advice. And we're here with a really cool guest today, Kane, the founder of Synthetics. You probably know him as a DeFi OG who has been very positive about Ethereum. And I'm also here with Kareem, our researcher, who also happens to be an Ethereum maxi. So I think this will be a really interesting conversation about layer twos, Ethereum, and obviously also the future of synthetics. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, Kane. To uh, start off, Kane, I would like to first know uh, about like how did you get into crypto and why did you choose to build on Ethereum? So it's already quite a, a while ago, but I would like to uh, hear that story. Yeah, so uh, I was um, I built a payment gateway in in Australia uh, back in 2014, um, and that payment gateway uh, allowed people to uh, make cash deposits in uh, in local businesses. Um, and so, obviously, one of the uh, really early use cases for that was buying Bitcoin. Um, you know, this is this is like you know. And we weren't even selling ETH at the time. Uh, this is like in my Bitcoin maxi days still. So, um, so yeah, uh, allowing people to you know go and bring a couple hundred dollars and, and buy a Bitcoin in, in a local uh, retailer was was kind of the thing that got me into the space. Um, and then I think you know over uh, over the first kind of few years um, as we were building out that network, um, I you know went kind of down the Ethereum rabbit hole, uh, particularly around the time of the DAO. Um, I think that that was something that uh, just, you know, kind of captured my attention. Um, this idea of, you know, globally coordinating capital formation um, as a, an entrepreneur for a long time, you know, that was something that, uh, that, that I thought was pretty amazing. And, and it was like the first use case where I was like, all right, I really get this. Yeah, you've probably uh, seen the news about the DAO recently when the book came out about the DAO hack. What's your view on that? Because you were there around that time. Like a lot of stuff is unraveled in that book. Yeah, so I actually haven't read the book yet. Um, you know, I, I was uh, at East Denver um, when uh, when it was released. And then we've been at our offsite uh, here in Mexico. So we've had a pretty packed schedule. Um, but I'm, I've got uh, a week off next week. So I'm planning to read it. So I can't really comment yet. Um, I've read most of the theories about the Dow hack, uh, you know, over the years. Uh, it's definitely something I've been interested in. So, um, you know, I, I'm very curious to, to see what the take is. Um, and yeah, see if, uh, see if I, I believe that the mystery has been solved. Yeah, I see what you mean. And at some point you decided to work on synthetics, but you have once said that no one really understands synthetics. I believe you told that to Andre. So one thing I would like to ask you is to finally explain our listeners and us what synthetics is for you and, you know, like how they can use it in the right way. 
Yeah, so I, I think it was it was kind of a, a joke that Andre uh, put out, right? This poll of like, you know, do you understand synthetics or, or whatever, right? And and I I replied back, and I think twenty percent of people said yes, they did, um, and I said, you know, zero percent of people actually understand how synthetics works. Um, so uh, so I think you know the the interesting thing about synthetics is that. The mechanism itself is uh, is fairly straightforward, but uh, synthetics as a project has been around for a really long time, and there's a lot of different aspects to it. Um, and I think that that can be kind of you know a bit intimidating for people. Um, you know, they don't really know where to start or, or where to jump in. You know, there's all these different projects within like the synthetics ecosystem, but at at its core, uh, synthetics is very similar to Maker. Right. You have a collateral token, you lock that collateral token and you issue debt against it. Right. Um, you issue a stable coin against it. And then you have mechanisms like other stable coins that are designed to kind of keep the uh, the stable coin, um, you know, aligned with the, the dollar peg where synthetics expands, I guess, this stable coin concept beyond something like DAI is we then allow you to convert that stable coin, the US dollar stable assets are still backed by the same collateral. So you have a single pool of collateral that allows you to have, you know, different Forex currencies, gold, silver, uh, uh, you know, different cryptocurrencies. So this, we were one of the first synthetic Bitcoin uh, tokens on Ethereum um, you know, back in the day. Um, and so these are, these are uh, I guess that's where we diverge from a lot of different stablecoin systems. It's not that much more complex, but I think it, it's kind of hard for people when they're initially uh, jumping in to sort of understand. But fundamentally, it's just a, a crypto collateralized stablecoin um, with different denominations. That's that's the fundamental uh, kind of you know uh, definition of synthetics. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. And I really like how you kind of started that because this was like during DeFi summer when people really paid attention to what you were doing. How was, did you uh, view that period? Was was way before, am I, am I muted now? No, it was way before DeFi summer, it was 2017, um, but sort of like became popularized during um, DeFi summer. Um, and I mean, usually one thing that we... we yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, usually one thing that we tend to ask um, builders is why they chose to build on the platform that they chose to. Like, for instance, whether that be Ethereum, Solana, or Avalanche, so on and so forth. I mean, in your case, 2017, there was not much around. But one thing that I want to ask you is what you think of alternative chains that have caught traction, right? For instance, um, Binance Smart Chain or Terra or Solana, um, because you have been very outspoken about Ethereum and wanting to bring capital back home into Ethereum. And we'll get to L2s in a second. Um, but I want to know your thoughts on all of these different chains, specifically, to be honest, Solana out of the other ones. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we chose Ethereum because it was really the only smart contract platform that was, was viable back then, as, as you pointed out. Um, why have we stayed on Ethereum and, and why did we kind of double down and, and focus on optimism, uh, you know, as a, a layer two? 
Um, I think again to stay within the ecosystem, but we can talk about L2s, uh, you know, uh, later in in the show, I guess, and, and go a bit deeper into that. Um, my perspective on these alternative chains is that I kind of uh, I kind of underestimated the the power of uh some of the the different trade-offs that were chosen right so with solana specifically you know lower fees um, faster transaction times um you know i i didn't anticipate at the time that the difference between ethereum l1 and solana would be as great as it, it would end up being you know transaction fees weren't that high on the when Solana was, you know, kind of starting to gain traction, right? So the Delta drive a lot of people over to um, that ecosystem. <coughs> Pardon me. But over time, you know, particularly as, as the by summer kicked in, and then you know, even in 2021, we just got to a point where um, Ethereum L1 became non-viable, and and I think it's it's still in that state. Um, you know, if you're launching a new project. You basically can't launch that project on on Ethereum L1, um, and so you know that puts uh, builders in in a very difficult position, right? Because if you're if you're building a new project and you can't build on Ethereum L1, but you want to stay in the Ethereum ecosystem, okay, you can go to Polygon, right? Um, which I think is is a reasonable choice, um, you know, or you have to go to another EVM chain, um, you know, until maybe. The last six months, uh, you know, L2s were not really an option. You could go to Starkware. That was that was one option. But there weren't a lot of good choices if, if you wanted to build in the Ethereum yeah. ecosystem in the last year. And so I think that what that's done is, is created an environment where, you know, builders have moved to other chains in a way that I just didn't anticipate myself. I, I didn't think that not only builders, though, but um, I mean, even investors end up like uh, migrating to other chains for, you know, because a lot of people were priced out with all, you know, the high gas fees that cost, you know, no one wants to pay one or two hundred dollars for, you know, a swap or something. Um, of course, of course. Yeah. And, and I, so I think, you know, like users and investors and, and, uh, and your know, communities follow builders. Right, mm -hmm. um, you know, builders are are the kind of shelling point around which uh, communities form, and so when people would uh, postulate that you know everyone was going to move to BSC, uh, that was laughable at the time because no builder was going to you know uh, contemplate going to that chain. I mean, BSC sat around doing nothing for like an entire year, right, and, and literally no one deployed anything onto it. But as the fee delta between ethereum and and bsc and some of these other chains grew builders were forced into contemplating going to to other places right and you're forking things and, and migrating across once the builders started to move that's when there was actual things to do and then the users followed them um and i, I again i just think that this was a big miss on my part and, and a lot of people in the ethereum ecosystem just missed this they didn't they didn't anticipate that that kind of uh you know builders would be you think um, incentives have also played a role because obviously all these ecosystems are launching developer funds and they offer grants to people to build on there. How do you feel that do you anticipate so much capital also flowing to these chains in terms of institutional capital? Because we've seen this on, for example, Solana a lot with the hackathons. 
So, you know, I, I joke about this on Twitter. I, I, I kind of periodically make this joke, right? Like the best evidence in crypto is price action, right? So, you know, once builders started to move to these chains uh, and, and started to build on them uh, and momentum grew, you get this reflexive cycle, right? Where the early people who went there, you know, and when Solana was a dollar or, you know, whatever, uh, and, and they need Solana to, to interact with the network, you know, now they're bought in, now Solana's $5 and they're really excited and everything's going well. And then it's 10, you know, and it just has this kind of, uh, this process where it's very self-reinforcing. They become advocates, they start talking about, you know, why Solana is so good and, you know, the low fees and how fast it is, et cetera. And, and you just get this very, very powerful cycle, which we've seen play out with, Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, now these, these other networks. Again, I just think, you know, the miss for me and some of the other people in the Ethereum community was that this cycle itself would, would be so quick, right? And so you've had this interesting dynamic where you've had a bull market and even a bull market for ETH, right, over the last 18 months. But um, a lot of the projects building on Ethereum actually didn't get as much attention post-DeFi summer as many people expected, right? They, they, you know, have really kind of fallen away. And I think if you ask the average person in the crypto community, if you just did a sample of crypto Twitter, um, you know, there's a lot of projects that are on Ethereum that they're not even aware of, um, which just was not the case two years ago. You know, every blue chip project, every person on crypto Twitter knew, right? You know, there's probably people in the Avalanche ecosystem who have no idea what Aave is. Or what curve is, or I mean, and now, like, I mean, some of these things as they've deployed to these chains, they've become aware. But you know, the things that stayed on Ethereum, uh, you know, really lost a lot of mind share. Now there are like alternatives to building on Ethereum, obviously, like with L2s, right? Um, and again, we'll get to talk about them like in detail in a second. But first off. How is it gonna? How do you think it compares for like a dev for a builder to come in and build? Right, you have on one side Ethereum, which is like a very rich ecosystem to come in and build, and you have you know better tools now, cheaper fees, um, better user experience in general, um, versus other ecosystems that are offering big incentives. Right, for instance, near protocol with 800 million BSC, I think came out with like a billion because CZ likes to talk about everything, um, but. How do you think that that will compare for um, builders? Because you will know builders like better than anyone else. I, look, incentives for builders are, are definitely uh, important, right? Um, but I don't think that they are sufficient to get people to build on uh, a worse platform, right? I think builders, you know, typically are. Um, pretty aligned with like building in the best place that they can build. Now, what are the things they're looking for, right? They're looking for uh, liquidity, right? They're looking for good tooling in the ecosystem. They're looking for, you know, a user base. There's a whole range of things that as a builder, I think you need to look at. And, it, you know, the reason why no one built on BSC for that entire year, even though there were very strong incentives, you could do an IDL on Binance, you could do, you know, they had a whole bunch of things that they were doing and still people kind of just said, meh, it's not worth it, right? I'll keep building on Ethereum because that's where all of the rest, you know, when you do the calculus as a builder, all of the other things were just so much better over on Ethereum, right? And then we got to this point where high fees started pushing users into other ecosystems and, and the calculus shifted, right? So, you know, developer incentives, again, I think are part of the, the story, but they're not the whole story. Um, now that said, we're about to see 
see, you know, with the launch of L2 tokens, um, this played out on Solanaism, um, you know, in Stockware. Cut off a bit at the very end. Um, I missed that last uh, sentence. Uh, yeah, so, so you know, I think as we see uh, tokens launch for the L2s within mm. the Ethereum ecosystem, we're going to see this same cycle play out, right? Like we're, at the yeah. moment, we're fighting with, you know, one hand tied behind our back, so. Yeah, I agree. Same reflexivity as like other ecosystems, basically. Um, once like there's a token out there. Um, okay, I think let's talk about the L2s. Right, the different options because you've been very outspoken about um, a specific one of those L2s. Right, obviously there are like optimistic rollups and we have zk rollups. Um, in general, just like as an overview, what's your consensus in terms of what ends up being most used over time? Short-term winner, long-term winner? Yeah, I think I think you know long-term winner is definitely zero knowledge. Right, like a zero knowledge uh, scaling solution definitely uh, has significant advantages over, um, over optimistic rollups. Um, that said, I do think, you know, when we talk in crypto, oftentimes what looks like the medium term can be a lot longer uh, than you expect, right? So I think the medium term winner is optimistic rollups. Um, for, you know, for most people, they might think the medium term is six months or, or 12 months. I think we could be in, a, in an environment where like the medium term is more like two years, three years, four years, right? And that's a long time for uh, optimistic rollups to, to build market share, to build you know, uh, communities, et cetera. And I think that once you have those network effects, uh, it might be harder than people anticipate for like zero knowledge scaling solutions to, to kind of take, uh, take on the optimistic rollups. But I think in the long, long, longer timeframe, everyone will have to evolve into zero knowledge uh, solutions because they're just much more efficient. You think they're, I mean, the main issue, as I understand it, again, I'm not like the most technical person, but the main issue with ZK rollups is the EVM compatibility, if I'm not mistaken. There, there's a bunch of challenges, I think, right? Um, but, you know, if you can imagine like a, a theoretical perfect zero knowledge uh, scaling solution, um, mm -hmm. it's going to, uh, it's going to be able to inherit all of the tooling um, you know, all of the, the benefits that you have, have in the current, uh, you know, EVM environment um, and not require, you know, uh, different code or anything like that. And so, you know, if you had this perfect solution, uh, I think it would have significant advantage over, you know, some of the other solutions that are out there. The question is how long does it take us to build towards that perfect solution? Because right now there are a lot of impediments, right? You know, if you look at something like Starkware, you know, you've got to rewrite everything. Starknet is getting closer, but even Starknet, you know, is going to have some challenges. So there's this progress towards this, you know, ultimate scaling solution that, that we all, you know, want to see. Um, mm -hmm. It's just a question of what's the pathway through to that scaling solution. Yeah, and zooming in on optimistic rollups, you have chosen for optimism. Why did you decide to go for optimism while we're seeing a lot of people deploy on Arbitrum? Because I find it an uh, interesting choice. Yeah, you know, when we made that choice, it was it was a long time ago, um, and we had to pick someone. Both Arbitrum and Optimism had a lot of work to do um, to get to production, and we made a decision that we were going to partner with a team and actually, you know, bear a lot of the cost 
cost of the engineering work that would be required to get to mainnet um, because we identified that you know synthetics being a very complex smart contract suite just had to have scaling right we knew that the things that we wanted to do futures um you know uh very low latency oracles were just not going to happen on l1 and so we made the decision very early on to commit to working with us as specific team um when we made that decision you know we we met uh with the optimism team obviously they've got you know some of the the best researchers in the ethereum uh community um and we had a lot of confidence that they would be able to execute on on their vision it was a similar approach to what we took with Chainlink. you know back people forget that uh you know synthetics was basically the first project to use uh chain link on mainnet right um, you know, we went through like all of the like pre-mainnet work with Chainlink, worked very closely with them and built a very deep relationship with with that project. And, you know, it paid off significantly because you have you know a lot of uh, connectivity into that ecosystem. Um, and we felt that the same thing would happen with Optimism. Um, I think for everyone, optimistic rollups have taken longer than we would have liked. Um, but we are now finally, you know, in, in um in 2022 right the you know the meme is like l222 because i think we're finally there where we can actually you know have production ready optimistic rollups and start building on them i see and um what's your view on like the stuff happening on arbitrum because looking at the tvl obviously see more activity there do you think there maybe has to be more being built on optimism to get closer to that? And do you think this will happen this year as more protocols will also launch on optimism or will it take a bit more time? I think, I think we're going to see in both communities, in both ecosystems, both optimism and arbitrum, a very rapid scaling. Uh, I think once they have both have tokens, and, and obviously they're both you know working on tokens. Uh, I think they both talked about tokens publicly. <laughs> so I think once we have that, uh, the the incentives will uh, shift significantly. I think the other advantage that you know both Optimism and Arbitrum, and you know remember the TVL is is quite small, right? It's less than some you know uh, protocols on on Ethereum, right? For both of them, you know I think it's a couple billion uh, in total, right? Like you know, Curve has has orders of magnitude more than that just on on uh, Ethereum. So um, there's a lot of value that's still sitting on L1 that's not yet ready to move to top missing rollups. And I think once people get confident, <laughs> pardon me, I think once once people have you know confidence to move from L1 to uh, to rollups, then we're going to see a, a massive uh, influx of TVL, and you know we'll probably see both Optimism and Arbitrum with. 100 billion plus TVL by the end of the year is my expectation. Yeah, I feel like the onboarding process also plays a big role in that. Like we're finally seeing uh, centralized exchanges accept layer twos for people to withdraw and deposit. I really think that could play a really big role for this year too, because that's really what we need for people to go to these ecosystems. And we have seen that with alternative layer ones too, where mm -hmm. when FTX started focusing on Solana and Binance on BNB, you really saw capital uh, go. Agreed. Yeah, on ramps and off ramps are critical. Um, you know, without that, it, the friction's just too high to get people to move. Yeah, I mean, uh, going to an L1 and then using a bridge is like um, you're paying the gas fees anyway, right? User experience wise, just doesn't work. Exactly. Um, it's not talking. Fair. 
talking of bridges, right? I mean, I guess you think, first off, Vitalik like shared his thoughts on this. Do you think this is going to be a multi-chain universe where we have like different chains um, that are interoperable, each one perhaps taking a different sector? Or how do you view it before I pose my second question? Um, I, I would say, you know, uh, um, sorry, did you lose me? Yeah. You got me? Yeah, for a little bit. Did I freeze? Yeah, okay, all right, yeah, I'll, I can start again. Um, you know, I'm, I'm maybe not the best person to answer this question because my predictions about uh, where the ecosystem will go have historically not been, been the most accurate. Um, I think the reality is we are now in a multi-chain world. Uh, um, you know, there there is sufficient organic activity to be self-sustaining. There's critical mass in Solana and Avalanche and, and you know, even BSC. Um, there are individual, you know, communities and builders and, and ecosystems that are just going to be there. I think, um, you know, I don't think, I don't think it's like what we saw with EOS where there was the appearance of a community, but then when you actually dug into it, you realized that there was nothing really there. Um, and so it kind of fell apart. Um, but I think with with these um, alt L ones in in you know um, 2021, there was genuine activity that really started. So I think that's the reality we're in now. We're in a multi chain okay. reality. I don't think that changes. Where I do think, though, you know, you you kind of alluded to this is I think that a lot of the activity and a lot of the the value that is on these chains can be repatriated back to the Ethereum uh, ecosystem. I, I expect that that might happen. Um, and you know, I think that once people see the value of you know having access to L1 uh, as like a settlement layer and rollups as as this kind of fast execution layer, uh, a lot of people are going to to you know be willing to kind of come back um, you know to the the mothership. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pro that. I mean, I'm I'm a bit of an Ethereum maxi myself, so I'd I'd love to see that happen. Um, but I mean, other chains are probably going to still be around, right? And I have this sort of theory of the market that um, it progresses in a very logical path, right? In terms of where progress and where like also prices as an investor, right? That's something that I care about where prices go as well. Um, and in the 2010s as a decade, I sort of see it as the decade where we prove that we need censorship resistance. Right, we need peer-to-peer -peer money, and one-dimensional blockchains such as Bitcoin that you know just can transact peer-to-peer proved that. And the biggest proof that it was needed was Bitcoin's price. Right, then we started moving towards like we need to build on top of that. Right, and that's where like sort of base layers come in. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why like we saw like the rallies like from last year and the interest and developer interest as well. And I do agree that developers are a shelling point um, for capital. Um, and sort of the application layer comes at the very end of it, right? Because it can only be built once the base layer or the infrastructure is like complete. Now, part of the infrastructure, synthetics you think is like within the application layer. That's like in general, that's how someone would sort of see it. But something that you've tweeted about, right? Sort of puts synthetics in the infrastructure layer, partially at least, right? Because we have a multi-chain universe. There are two solutions right now to go from ch chain to chain. Well, three of them, right? You have centralized exchanges, which is like 
absolutely a no-go if we want to move to decentralization. You have bridges, which is an IOU problem because you know you're using multi-sigs and wormholes, an example. Yes, they were saved by jump capital, but I mean, what if it wasn't what if it was like Rainbow Bridge, right? Or another bridge. And then number three, you have liquidity pools such as like what Thorchain uses, right? Which is an interesting model, but we've seen people navigate towards bridges at least. Now you're offering a solution for that problem. And I'd love to hear it from you. And I'm sure the audience would love to hear it from you um, straight. Yeah, so, so we've been thinking about this problem uh, for a while because you know L2 to L1 is still a bridge, right? Even, even if you're within the Ethereum ecosystem, you still need a bridge. Um, and liquidity across uh, L1 and L2 has been very problematic because right now, L1 and L2 are two distinct networks. They're two different versions of synthetics, right? They're not actually connected to one another. Um, and so the assets are not fungible, which means we don't have a thing to bridge right now, but very soon we'll have a, a synthesis where we merge the two networks and they become a single network. And that will use Chainlink uh, for cross-chain messaging. Once these two networks are the same, this is something that's very different to almost every other protocol. Most protocols, when they go and deploy uh, to a new chain, they just deploy a, a forked version of the code, right? And, you know, they're not actually uh, speaking to one another, right? They're not sharing fees. They're not, um, you know, they're not uh, creating fungible assets. They're just distinct implementations. The difference with synthetics is that Chainlink allows for synthetics to be on whichever network it's deployed, fully connected. And so it, it becomes this layer that sits across all of the other chains that it's on, whether it's on a rollup or whether it's on another L1. The advantage to this is that you can move assets um, across this whole synthetics network without adding any additional trust other than what you already have in the synthetics ecosystem. So if you trust SUSV and you trust synthetic Bitcoin and you trust these synthetic assets on these different networks, you don't need to trust any additional uh, sort of components in order to be able to move synthetic assets across the network because you're just relying on Chainlink and synthetics and the, and the various incentive mechanisms between those two networks in order to move. So you avoid multi-sigs, you avoid liquidity pools and, and you avoid some of these things. The other nice property of synthetics is that all of the liquidity on every network is accessible. <laughs> so. You don't need to get liquidity onto optimism in order to be able to access it on, on L1. You can just migrate from one to the other directly. And so those two properties of not having uh, any increased trust in order to cross different networks and the ability to, to access liquidity anywhere in the network um, is very powerful. And there's really no other protocol that kind of gives you those two properties. So once synthetics gets to the point where we have these multiple deployments, I think that a lot of people will start relying on synthetic assets and, and synths to move across chain because it'll be the most liquid, uh, fastest kind of exit point. So you're also solving the fragmented liquidity thing because we've been delving into like options protocols. And one, that, one thing that we've noticed is like, difference between a protocol on L1 and the protocol, the same protocol on the L2 is the liquidity is very different. Um, so synthetics basically aims to solve that. Do you have any, again, if you don't want to answer that question, feel free, but do you have any sort of timeline in terms of when you plan to be deploying on other networks? And does that include other L1s or just L2s? Um, so I think 
uh, it's probably initially going to be within the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, so there's already a proposal to deploy on Polygon. Um, so, you know, you'll have Optimism, Polygon. Um, I fully expect that the community will uh, request that, you know, synthetic is deployed on Arbitrum as well. Uh, maybe Arknet, um, you know, when, when that's ready. So you'll have multiple different systems, I think. So I expect to kind of see that. In terms of um, in terms of timelines, you know, we're probably looking on the order of uh, two to three months before we're before the, the debt pools are merged um, and we can start to to deploy. But you know, it's going to be this year for sure. Well, I mean, really looking forward to that because it does solve a lot of problems. And I think one one other point you you made the point of options protocols, right? So Lyra is an options protocol. You know, to go back to your question about synthetics being infrastructure versus you know uh, the DAP layer, uh, synthetics powers Lyra, right? So Lyra is an options protocol that leverages the liquidity within synthetics to be able to you know uh, hedge options and and offer very deep options liquidity. Right now, it's only on optimism uh, because it needs to run on an L2. It can't run on L1. Uh, the the calculations and, and the computational um, requirements are just too high to run on L1. It would be too expensive, but it can easily run on Polygon or on Arbitrum. So you can imagine the scenario where uh, Lyra is deployed on top of synthetics on multiple L2s. And as you, you know, rightly pointed out, the liquidity that you can access, whichever one of those networks you as a user want to be on, is the same. You get the same pool of liquidity. You don't need to go and access different liquidity on different networks. It's not fragmented because you can move synths and, and SUSD across mm -hmm. any of those networks very easily. So you can say, well, I'm on Polygon now, but I want to go to Arbitrum and you just bring all your liquidity with you. You don't need to go and do a transaction route through uh, a centralized exchange or you know go through a liquidity pool. You just literally hop over to, to the other network via um, you know, SUSD. This could also be very beneficial for lending, right? Because often you maybe want to lend on one chain and you want to borrow on another because it's more favorable in terms of the rates. Would this solution also play a role for those kind of protocols? I think uh, the ability to, to integrate um, like what we call teleporters, right? So effectively what's happening, <clears throat> and this is, this is the fundamental difference. So currently most bridges, you have an asset, it wraps it on one network and gives you an IOU on the other network, right? Like that's, that's kind of the, the, you know, the standard way of, of achieving this, right? And then you get these weird situations where there's two bridges and they've got a competing wrap token on the other side and you know, they're not fungible and whatever, right? With synths, we don't do that. Uh, because the entire uh, the entire collateral pool is backing all of the synths on every network, we actually just burn the synth. So we burn SUSD on one network and we mint it on the other network. So there's no wrapping, there's no IOUs. You literally just say, I have this asset on this network and I want it on the other network, right? So you can imagine a scenario where you went to Aave, let's say, um, you deposited collateral and you borrowed SUSD. And then you said, actually, I need that SUSD you know and and you were on polygon let's say and you said you know what i need that susd to be on l1 because i want to go and do a trade on on curve you literally just teleport that susd it's burned it appears on the other network and you're ready to go even though your collateral position on Aave is over on polygon right but you you needed the the assets that you borrowed to be over on uh on you know l1 to go and trade on curve um you can go and do the trade 
finish it, and then you can teleport yourself back over to uh, to Polygon to close out the position. So there's a lot of power in being able to you know access whatever liquidity you have is accessible, right? So if you're holding a hundred million dollars with BestUSD, you click one button, that hundred million dollars appears on whichever network you wanted to. Awesome. Yeah, that really sounds very exciting. Like it's probably the dream of like most users because right now you're often stuck in a bridge. It's it can be pretty scary to just deposit your assets and hope they come out at the right way because you know some people do this with a lot of money and I think this is a great solution to tackle that insecurity as well. But I want to also talk about one other protocol you're working on. You can probably guess which one I mean. It's about uh, fundraising and you recently invented it. It's called Alien Protocol. And I want to know why you decided to work on that on the side and tell our listeners what it is. Yeah, so Alien Protocol is basically like a, a SPAC protocol, right? So um, <clears throat> if you know from TradFi, a SPAC is a, a way to get a pool of funds and uh, essentially uh, list a, a private company on like a stock exchange, right? Um, the Alan's a little bit different because you're not, you know, uh, taking something public, you know, you're, you're uh, just raising funds for it, but it allows you to uh, get access in theory um, to seed stage deals and, and other uh, deals by putting money into a pool and then a sponsor who's holding that pool of funds can go out and talk to projects and say i want to do a deal with you i've got you know five million dollars in this pool the five million dollars you know gets with and the sponsor who may not have five million dollars themselves can has the power to go out and you know negotiate these deals um so it's it's a it's an interesting project. It was a it was a cool project to work on, um, but the way that I, I approached it, you know, my focus is still on synthetics, um, was basically to write the spec for it, and then I just put it out, and some people stepped up and actually started building it. Andre Cronier wrote some of the early contracts. Uh, um, you know, uh, Alex Laborde, um, who's an anon uh, from you know within the synthetics ecosystem, kind of took it on and and took those contracts and uh and and you know basically built the rest of the protocol so um it, it was a very interesting process to kind of go through it was, it was very different to like a normal startup where you know i was kind of coordinating everything i literally just kind of wrote a spec and said hey here you go have it ecosystem i see and how do you think this can benefit the ecosystem like for example ethereum users people who want to because we all know the ICO era and like the way we raise money now, they're often private rounds, seed rounds, maybe then an IDO. We have seen some more innovation with like home and those kind of races, but how can this uh, benefit users who may feel left out now with a lot of these? Uh... So I think one, one other uh, thing that I've been pushing for the last you know, 12, 18 months is this idea of DAO first races. <laughs> and so, you know, when you do a DAO first raise, uh, it can sometimes be challenging because there's no entity involved, right? Like it's literally a pure DAO. You you launch a DAO, and then the DAO you know brings contributors in, brings uh, you know people who contribute capital, IP, effort, you know, engineers, etc. It, it kind of brings all these things together, and then it launches, and it launches a token, and then it starts governance, and and the process kicks off. There's a bit of a disconnect between DAO first and a VC, 
right, in principle. Because a VC, you know, oftentimes is a regulated entity and they're kind of looking at this like weird Dow first thing and saying like, what, you know, where's my alignment, right? And so the idea of having a decentralized protocol that can act as the VC and replace the VC on the capital side and is natively Dow first is very powerful, right? Because it means anyone can participate. They can put up a pool of funds together. A project can turn up as a, a Dow first project and you can connect the two of them and, and kind of make that funding work. So I think um, we haven't yet seen it get a lot of uh, momentum or traction. I think there's a couple of deals that, um, that are being worked on. Um, but I think once we see uh, the, the benefits of enabling DAO first projects to get that first seed round from a decentralized pool of capital, uh, that you know, people will start getting very interested in, in how that works and, and why, you know, what the benefits are. Question two on DAOs do you, and like decentralizing governance in general. I think, again, I may be wrong. I'm not a dev, right? But do you think that protocols should in general start off centralized until like the founders put forth the vision and then decentralize over time? And or like, where, where, where do you think like the optimal timing for decentralization is? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we actually just had a, a very long session for about three hours talking uh, at our offsite about synthetics governance. And, and you know, there's a lot of new people in the protocol, uh, new core contributors who are here uh, who don't know the history of synthetics governance, right? Um, and synthetics governance, I think, is quite interesting because it did start off purely centralized. Um, you know, there was a, a software foundation. I was the person who was running it. You know, I was not the CEO, but I was basically the, you know, the founder and, and you know, kind of leader of this, uh, this entity. And we decided in 2020 that that was you know, not the optimal pathway, right? We'd already started to hand over a lot of the decision making to the community, but we wanted to really lean into that. And so we actually dissolved all the entities in 2020, handed control directly to token holders, um, you know, started to really evolve the governance framework. And Synthetics was the, the project that kind of, uh, I think, spearheaded this uh, concept of councils, right? Of having, you know, a, a council of elected people who had delegated authority to be able to, uh, you know, kind of make decision on, as opposed to direct token holder voting, like in a maker style system where every decision is voted on, you know, directly by, uh, token holders. Um, so, you know, I think that um, for for the time that we started, that made sense. You kind of had to be centralized and, and uh, decentralized over time. There wasn't sufficient tooling to be able to do that process, you know, in the way that there is now. I think today, DAO first and starting with open governance is actually the optimal path. I think if you start centralized with a, you know, a company or um, a foundation or something like that. I think that's actually not the optimal path, and and it's a false economy. So all of the projects that I talk to today, you know, I recommend to them that they launch DAO first. Uh, they don't set up entities. They they literally start with open governance from day one, uh, because I think that we're at a, at a place now where the tooling is there that you can you can actually do that and, and still coordinate the protocol uh, without you know um, introducing too many inefficiencies. Doesn't, doesn't it make building a lot tougher though? Because I mean, it's a lot easier when you have like a group of two, three people making the decisions and like leading protocol forward, right? When you have too many people. So, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I, I think that's, uh, I think it, it's, 
an intuition that a lot of people have, and I think it's right in some ways, but I think it's in other ways, it actually is uh, today not necessarily true, right? <laughs> so if you have a council, um, so let's take Lyra, for example, right? So Lyra launched effectively Dow first, right? Um, <coughs> pardon me, sorry. Um, so basically what Lyra did is they created a council and the council was elected by token holders to make decisions, right? Or by the community to make decisions. They have a separate group of people who are the engineers, right? Who, who actually build the things, right? But the engineers don't make the decisions. The council makes the decisions and then the engineers implement them. <laughs> and so what you get is a situation where you, you decouple decision-making and, and engineering. You don't need to worry about the engineers going and doing the wrong thing. They only do what you tell them to do. And you've got people who can make quick decisions who've got delegated authority from the community. I think that's actually the optimal path because you have a, then a legitimate governance process. It's not just three people in a room arbitrarily deciding things. They are, they're, they've been mandated by the community, but you also have very clear direction for the engineers and the contributors in the project as to what they should do. And so if you do that and you, you have a setup like that, I think it's quite powerful and, and oftentimes more powerful than just having like a dictator making every decision. Makes sense. I mean, a very interesting approach. Well, the council and engineers being two separate teams, that sort of um, makes sense, to be honest. To uh, Kane, the year is 2025, right? Where is synthetics? So... I think synthetics in, in 2025 has fully uh, it kind of um, transformed into uh, a protocol that enables other systems to, uh, to work, right? And enables other protocols to uh, build on top of it. So we're already seeing this start with Lyra, um, we're seeing Quenta, um, we're seeing D-Hedge. Uh, there are a number of projects that are, that are leveraging the liquidity that synthetics provides. I think as synthetic spreads out to multiple chains, more and more projects will recognize the benefits of being able to, to access this liquidity anywhere. Um, and so I think that uh, the synthetics protocol itself um, will become you know, much more governance minimized and, and we'll be in a position where we won't need to be iterating and changing as rapidly as we do today. We can just be this like liquidity layer that people can tap into um, and, you know, they are able to generate revenue from leveraging that liquidity. Uh, and, you know, we'll have, you know, maybe uh, tens or even hundreds of different uh, applications that are integrated into the synthetics liquidity pool. And synthetics itself will just focus on the protocol and will not focus on like the DAP layer and, and the end user. So it becomes sort of like a backend um, for a lot of DAPs to come in and build source liquidity and, uh, you know, even for layers themselves to sort of um, source liquidity from synthetics. As weird as it sounds that, you know, synthetics is built on something and that something uses it for liquidity um, to move from place to place. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm quite excited specifically about the cross-chain stuff. Um, yeah, anything that you want to ask, Stan? if you're still here? Uh, yeah, I'm still here. I also really wonder what you uh, see in institutional adoption. Do you think we'll see more capital flow in from bigger players this year, or maybe it's too soon to say that? And where do you think synthetics can play a role for these uh, players? 
Yeah, so I, I think we will see uh, we will see continued institutional adoption. I think that that uh, that kind of wave has already happened, right? You know, the the kind of early period of that that took you know maybe a few years longer than than people were expecting, um, you know, has now gained sufficient momentum where it's not going to turn back, right? It's just going to continue. Um, it, you know, institutions are getting more and more comfortable giving access, you know, both at the institutional level as well as to their end users in, in many cases. Um, you know, we're seeing things like uh, Commonwealth Bank in Australia, for example, that used to love running around shutting down, you know, crypto companies' uh, uh, bank accounts, you know, every couple of weeks is now saying, you know, they're going to offer like institutional grade custody and and end user custody. Um, you know, so these are, there's just, a, I think the the kind of uh, the wave has, has already happened and, and it's just now a question of like, at what speed the various institutions go through their internal processes, right? Like these are, are you know, gigantic multinational companies in many cases and they don't move quickly. Uh, but I think the the kind of momentum internally uh, to engage with crypto is is there and it's just going to be, you know, uh, wave after wave of, uh, of adoption moving forward. I see. Yeah, I'm very excited to see how uh, that will go, and especially on chain, because obviously we're seeing stuff happen off chain and like uh, private rounds and seed rounds. But I think there's still uh, a lot of people who don't want to move on chain yet, because those are often crypto native firms. And as you said, it will probably take longer for that to happen because they're pretty slow in their in their way of doing. Do you think we get to a point where, um, let's say, 80 to 90% of people eventually are, they custody their own funds? Now, obviously, they'll probably be using something like socially recoverable wallets, right? Like Argent, for instance. Um, so they'd be using like better UX, UI. But do you think we get to a point where like 80 to 90% of people, like they actually own their own funds, not necessarily like participating in DeFi, because... Looking at the situation now, for instance, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, right? One part of it is um, Europe is trying to shut down SWIFT, um, some countries at least, um, for Russia, right? It, it's sort of used like a political tool, but why should people have to sort of suffer if it's their own funds, right? Or Canada shutting down, um, you know, freezing funds without court orders, which apparently is now overturned and like they've removed that sort of uh, emergency state law. But do you think we get to a point where people like 80 to 90% of the population owns their own funds? I think uh, it's, it's a very interesting kind of uh, fundamental question, right? Um, you know, is, is self-custody and, and self-sovereignty worth the trade-offs? <laughs> and so you know, when when I when I look at it and the tooling today, I think for most people the answer is no, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, self custody is is not really worth uh, the trade offs, the the risk that it introduces. Um, but I think that there are ways to build uh, guardrails, as you said, you know, social recovery, etc., uh, that allow you to have most of the benefits of, of self custody um, and and censorship resistance without the the trade offs of you know, losing all of your funds, right? Um, and, you know, we're still very, very early in that process, right? Like if you look at even, you know, hardware wallets and and software wallets and, and you know, the tooling that we have, uh, it's just not 
fit for the average person, right? Um, but I think once you have, uh, you know, players like Apple, um, you know, Samsung's already started to, to move into this space, um, you know, really deeply thinking about how crypto is integrated into their products. I think that you'll see solutions that are much more usable for the average person. And, and you know, you'll have maybe not all of your assets. I don't think the TradFi system goes away in, you know, the next five years, right? Um, but I think that people will have some self-custody assets. A lot of people, you know, the question is like, do you have your entire net worth self-custodied? I think for most people, the answer is going to be no for a long time. But will you have to, will you have some assets that you self-custody? I think in the next five years, you know, the vast majority of people will have some self-custodied assets, whether it's you know NFTs or you know stable coins or um, you know uh, various crypto assets. Yeah, I guess it's kind of similar, like people having money in their bank, but also having a physical wallet, like. They won't have all their money in the bank, and some even maybe have some cash under their couch, under like their couch or under yeah. their bed, because you never know what happens. I guess that's where self custody can also play a role. Like, okay, this is something I really don't want to lose, or something I don't want to think about. And then I have my MetaMask or my centralized exchange where I have my money to buy NFTs and trade. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. As we got like a bit more philosophical, I want to say on that vibe for a second there and i want to talk about developer ethics right one thing that you've noted um via twitter if i remember correctly is you've probably had access to rounds to buy soul before like anyone else knew about it heard about it and like you know multiples lower in terms of price at the moment right yet you still did not buy in despite like how cheap the and how attractive it was and you sort of like knew that this would catch some traction maybe not as much traction as it did but you intrinsically knew it right but ethically speaking you did not go for that and i'm interested in hearing uh, more about that and how you think that goes for other devs as well and if you want to say anything to other devs too so i don't actually think it was an ethical dilemma there right like i i think you know um there are definite advantages that, uh, you know, people who've been in the space for a long time uh, have, right? I have advantages over the average person because I have a reputation where, you know, if someone can add my name to their seed round announcement, they see it as a benefit, right? Um, so, you know, is it ethical to take advantage of that? I think in the environment that we uh, that we're in, where you know there's a, a market for capital and and access to capital, um, you know, is is very easy. Any advantage you can leverage to get access to uh, to deal flow um, is kind of you know part of the the uh, the game, right? Um, that's part of the game that everyone's playing, right? Everyone's trying to play that game. Some people have inherent advantages in, in that they've been in the market longer, um, you know, but everyone's playing the same game with the same rules. It doesn't mean that it's uh, equal, right? It doesn't mean that everyone has equal access, um, but everyone has the ability to play that game, right? Um, you know, someone can can start their own VC fund and go around and, and you know, get friends and family to, to you know, uh, put some money in and then they can go and try and you know find the next greatest project and you know when that project does really well then they're going to get more capital like this is this is capital allocation and i think that you know uh again whatever advantages you have are somewhat um you know okay to leverage 
Um, obviously, there's certain things that you know I don't think are uh, you know um, misinformation and and you know uh, and you know committing fraud or or you know claiming something is the case when it's not the case or whatever. I think things like that are obviously unethical, and and I think that people should obviously avoid doing things like that. Uh, but leveraging, you know, leveraging your reputation uh, to get access to deal flow, um, I, I don't think is that problematic, given that this is, you know, a competition that we're all, we're all kind of, you know, participating in. The reason why I chose not to, uh, to invest in Solana and Avalanche and some of these old L1s was actually a personal reason. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have, uh, have challenged this and said, like, you know, it's just cope. Um, you know, I'm just trying to, to justify, you know, my bad investment decisions or whatever. And like, you know, on some level, like I, you have to question, you know, would I, uh, and you know, some people are like, why didn't you just invest in Solana, wait for it to moon and then dump it on everyone. Right. Um, you know, I guess that would also be like a viable strategy as well. Um, but, but my, my past experience, and again, this is a personal view, right? My past experience when I've held tokens or when I've held projects, that have done really well, I, I've seen it change how I think about those things, right? I think everyone is susceptible to this psychology, right? And, you know, all of a sudden you start seeing things that maybe you would otherwise have questioned um, and you kind of let them go, right? You're like, oh, that's okay, right? Um, you know, so I've seen projects that have done things that I don't agree with, right? I think are, you know, not the best way to approach things, but I'm holding a bag of that token and you kind of look the other way, right? And I don't really like the the, the uh, impact that that has on you. You know, uh, you know. I think um, trying to to remain uh, sort of neutral and and not having skin in the game sometimes can be the optimal strategy. And so my decision to not invest in Altel ones uh, was you know purely driven by the fact that I want to be aligned with the Ethereum ecosystem, and I, I believe that the Ethereum ecosystem is the eventual winner. So right now that looks like a very dumb bet. Right. It's like you're an idiot. Like, why didn't you just buy Solana and, and you know, uh, at a dollar? Right. When I was talking to SBF on a podcast and he's shilling it to me and I'm like, yeah, like I'm not doing that. Like, I'm just not making that trade. Right. Like there's some trades you just, you know, you can you can kind of avoid now in five years time when the market's shaken out, maybe that looks less dumb. Right. Maybe sticking with ETH and, and focusing on ETH and, and you know, remaining kind of uh, very aligned with the Ethereum ecosystem looks smarter. Maybe it looks really dumb. Maybe Ethereum doesn't exist and everything's running on Solana, right? We don't know yet. Like, you know, it will be interesting to see how it plays out. But one thing I do know is that like my alignment to the Ethereum ecosystem has never wavered. And I think if I was holding $20 million worth of Sol, I, I'd like to think that I could maintain neutrality, but I wonder whether I actually could, right? I, I feel like I might, uh, it might shift my, my incentives a little bit. Um, and I just think long-term, you know, my, my kind of ideological alignment is to the Ethereum ecosystem. So that was my rationale. Um, you can believe it or not, you know, like I, I literally sat there and like, I have a Kraken account, like I've got money in there. I could have, I could have put it in the salon. I chose not to, um, you know, you can believe that I guess, or, or not <laughs> depending on, on what you think my perspective is, but, um, you know, I don't, I didn't do it, um, you know, for whatever reason and, and, you know, kind of, uh, I'm, I'm reasonably comfortable with that decision. I guess, right? Even today, even knowing that, you know, those. Yeah.
everyone's still here. I feel like Sorry, I think I, I did I drop out for a sec. Oh. La- yeah, very yeah, very yeah, yeah. last bit. Uh, I think it yeah, just, it just I froze. Think there's a little bit of lag. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Right. Okay. Um, don't want to take too much of your time, Kane. I know your time is um, very valuable and precious. One thing, last question that we want to ask is. Our audience is mainly people who are either new or intermediate to crypto, right? I'd say that represents about 70% or 70% of our audience. If you wanted to give them a piece of advice to make it in crypto, what would it be? The emotion, right? Um, there's nothing more valuable than having conviction. If you do not have conviction, Crypto is so volatile. It's so insane. There's so much noise. There's so many different people trying to push you in different directions that you will just be a leaf blowing around in the wind. And, you know, eventually you're, you're just going to get blown out in space. So if you, if you really want to engage in crypto and, and you know, be able to uh, survive, you need to build conviction. It doesn't really even matter what that conviction is, right? You need to you need to kind of pick something. You need to dig into it. You need to understand it. In my case, my conviction is that the Ethereum ecosystem wins. If someone believes that like Avalanche, you know, is is the network that's going to win, and their high conviction, just having that conviction and, and being able to really you know believe that is the right play and and stick with it is very powerful. Because when you have conviction, you can stay in the market through the volatile times. Even if your conviction is not 100% exactly right, just the conviction alone is a very powerful, yeah. So, yeah, conviction. Build conviction, find a thing, dig into it, understand understand, understand why it's important, yeah. You like what that. You, like you like that a little bit is... right there. Can you just repeat that last sentence that you you said? Yeah, you know, uh, dig in, find something that you find interesting, research it, understand it. You know, build build conviction around whatever that thing is, um, and you know that will be the anchor that will allow you to kind of hold on when when things get crazy. Yeah, and what I also like about your approach, Ken, is you are not scared to sometimes admit that you maybe underestimated something or that you miscalculated. Like you're fine with admitting it, but you're also not uh, just stepping away from your initial conviction. It's not like you suddenly don't believe in Ethereum anymore. You are very good in balancing it by not becoming biased or just saying it's the market is wrong. It was not my fault. But instead of that, you just look at it in a very rational way. I think that's also a pretty important thing to do. Uh, yeah, agreed. I think you need to question your assumptions all the time, right? You know, uh, crypto is an imperfect information environment. There's no way you're ever going to have all of the information available to you, and, and it changes rapidly. So you need to be adaptable. Um, but I do think that you know having something that you you are deeply convicted about. Um, whilst, you know, being open to the idea that, that you know, potentially uh, you could be wrong and, and changing your mind is a very powerful thing to, it's a balance that's hard to strike, but if you can strike it, you'll be, you'll do very well in crypto. That's, that's uh, the right mindset.
Awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, you being on the podcast, Kane. And yeah. I'm also very thankful Kareem was here to help me. And I hope everyone enjoyed listening. And he's pumped throughout the episode. It's green on the day, despite, you know, the invasion and whatnot. So I think uh, it went pretty well. <laughs> but of course, it's not financial advice. <laughs>